morning. You can be seated. Everybody hear me? Everybody think good? Okay, my name's Stephen, and this is my third time to speak at Rock Hill. So I kind of feel like we're friends. We're close, yeah? So I feel like I can admit a somewhat embarrassing fact about myself. When I was a kid in elementary school, I loved Star Trek, <laughs> the original series. I come home every day, turn on an episode of Star Trek. I loved it so much that it was a nuclear option available to my mom. I'm going to take away Star Trek. No, no, no. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you say. In fact, I loved it even so much, I owned the Star Trek action playset. Show them the playset, guys. There it is, man. You would take your Kirk and Spock action figure. They were not dolls. They were action figures, just like G.I. Joe. And you would put them in there. You see that yellow thing? That was a transporter. You'd put them in it. You'd spin the blue button, and they'd start looking like they were fading. And then you'd push the red button, and they were gone. It was really cool. But I wasn't the only person that liked Star Trek. It actually had a very devoted following of very rabid fans. In fact, I have a clip I'd like to show you from a really fun documentary called Trekkies that came out in 1997 about a pretty extreme Star Trek fan. Do you guys have the clip, the video? Hi, this is Borgonaut. This is my son, Doug, my wife, Shelley, and my daughter, Kayla. We're here in Orlando, Florida, at the dental offices of Dr. Dennis Borgonaut. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. you. Welcome to Starbase Dental. We originally decided that we wanted to go with Star Trek because we find that Star Trek, the episodes are always geared with a moral. They're good doers. And we wanted to portray dentistry, uh, dentistry or dentists as good doers. So, um, this is reception. Yeah. <laughs> so he was, I think, more of a fan than I was. But why was Star Trek so popular? You heard the dentist talk about Star Trek being good doers. Not only was it science, was it kind of fun about space exploration, but it came out in 1966, and that was a time of the Cold War, and it showed harmony among nations. One of their officers, the navigator, was this young Russian guy who had a haircut like the Beatles, and he was really cool, and he was accepted and integrated. Not only that, this was in the civil rights movement, and it showed an African-American woman who was an officer equal to the men. She was an expert in communication in a very technical field, and she could also take a punch. Just like, seriously, like the guy, she, they, they hit her in one episode and she didn't scream. She just turned and like, wouldn't give them what they wanted. It showed harmony and equivalence uh, racially. And not only that, it showed that we were going to eventually achieve freedom from hunger, freedom from want. Who wouldn't want to live in that world? And those positive, those moral messages continued when they did a reboot of the series in 1987 called Star Trek The Next Generation. New characters, but kind of the same idea. And when I was in graduate school, I was kind of watching that, that program, and I was interested in their moral message about God. And I can summarize it this way. They basically said, we know that when cultures are young, in their infancy, they tend to believe in God or a deity, but we shouldn't look down on them for this. We know that as they mature, they will realize that science is the answer and that God doesn't really exist, but we should just be patient with them as they are evolving, right? So today we're continuing our series called Inspired, and I'm talking about science and the Bible because I think in our culture, 
it feels like there's a conflict, right? It feels like somehow science has disproved the Bible or science has disproved faith. So I want to talk about this. I've actually been doing medical science for the last 20 years. That's my career. Plus, I'm just interested in this topic. I read books about um, science and faith. Specifically, I am a biostatistician. Perhaps the nerdiest career that anybody could select. I explain it this way. At the annual statistics convention, yes, that's a thing. (laughs) The opening mixer, we got 5,000 statisticians. They need one keg, okay? It is not exactly the wildest group of people. If someone is to play my role in a movie, the absolute best I can hope for is Jeff Goldblum. You know, I can't, I'm not getting Brad Pitt. I'm getting Jeff Goldblum being snarky like in uh, Jurassic Park. And I also just personally feel like I can tell you guys, I realize the extreme difference in coolness between my personal example and Pastor Dave's. For those of you who have been here the past two weeks, what was his personal example? He and Candace are at uh, Candace's cousin's house, and the cousin says, Hey, Dave, as long as we've got nothing on the books tomorrow morning, let's climb a 14,000-foot mountain. (laughs) Don't worry, only 50 people have died, so we should be fine. (laughs) And my example is that when I was seven, my mommy bought me a Star Trek (laughs) playset. So... I have given up on trying to be cool, but I do do science. I do experiments all the time. I design and analyze data from experiments to show whether or not new drugs, new medical devices work. That is, they are safe and effective. So I, my job is to prove that medicines uh, and devices work. But even though that's my job, I want to say I'm not here to prove anything to anybody this morning. I'm not trying to convince you with clever words that what I say is correct. What I'm trying to do is just share with you how I, as a scientist, can also feel completely comfortable believing that the Bible is is the inspired word of God and that Jesus, who is described in the Bible, is the Son of God. And I want to say as we're going that questions are a good thing. Jesus himself said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And the way you get to the truth is to ask questions. So even if you don't see things the same way I do, that's great. I like to talk about it because... I'm just interested in the topic, and I always feel like I learned something talking with people who have a different point of view. So questions are good as we go. So science is about understanding the natural world, and I thought I really need to find a definition of science. So being a good scientist, I went to Google, the most scientific result anywhere, and I typed in the word science, and this definition came up. There's a definition that I found, and I'm going to read the, the less boring words. Science is the systematic study of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. And this seemed right to me. This is what science does. It kind of does two things. It describes things really well, has specific language to describe things, and then it does experiments to better understand and more specifically to predict what will happen in the future. You know, we all use our phones and our GPSs in our car to navigate, and those are bouncing up off of satellites. But let's think about what had to happen. You had to do a lot of experiments to get to where you have a satellite in the air. I mean, the rocket that that brings them into space, the chemical reaction is their fuel. That is a bomb, right? And you had to do experiments to make sure it doesn't explode like a bomb, but instead gives you the thrust that you want to get the satellite in the air. And you also have to understand and do experiments to understand the physics behind how do you get a satellite in the air and then get it into geosynchronous orbit. And all of that is explained by mathematics. So you really have to do a lot of science and a lot of experimentation. And the point of that is to be able to use it 
in the future. But to prove something that happened in history, you can't do it with the same techniques as you would with science. You cannot prove scientifically that Julius Caesar ruled ancient Rome, right? Because you can't run the experiment and do Julius Caesar again somehow and do it 10 times and make sure, yep, every time he runs ancient Rome. Well, you can't do the experiment again because it's a thing that happened in history. One of the best books that I have read in the last three months, this is not a book of science, one of the best books I've read, uh, three, three years actually, is a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor during World War II, who was offered the opportunity to live in safety in the United States and chose instead to stay back in Germany with his other Christian brothers and lead part of the revolt against Hitler. His family was involved with Valkyrie, the plot against Hitler, and he was executed for his faith. Amazing man, amazing faith that was alive and real. And this was a phenomenal book, and I recommend that you read it. But it is not a book about science. That doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it a book that's about history, things that happen. And in the same way, the Bible is not a book about science. It's not a recipe book. It doesn't tell you how to have Jesus live again. I mean, you can't do an experiment like that. It is a book talking about history. And if you're going to think about whether or not I should believe this Bible, the standard that you should use is the standard you would use for judging anything in history, right? Any kind of historical document. So the Bible contains um, historical accounts, and it also contains in some places some poetry and songs and other things. But these historical accounts that I'm going to focus on today are the accounts of the life of Jesus. They're called the Gospels. I sort of think of them as like biography, but they're not complete biography. They only focus on certain parts of his life. But I think these are as reliable as any other document from history that we believe. If you are fair and use the same methods of of establishing evidence. So I'm going to describe some of these reasons, and I'm not going to go into super great detail with them. They're available, and if you're the type of person who's interested in these details, come talk to me, and I can give you books to read that tell you that. But I'm going to talk about some of the reasons that these four ancient books are reliable as historical books. One is that they date very close. They are written very close to the life of Christ. Jesus is thought to have been um, crucified in around 30 AD, and these books are all thought to have been written by 70 AD, so only 40 years. If they had been written in 1900, describing something that happened in the first century, you'd be a little skeptical that they were really right. But these are written very close to the life of Jesus, giving them credibility. There are also multiple copies of this manuscript, and this is one way we judge historical documents. I didn't pull a graph or anything, but you look at how many copies there are of, of the scriptures, and it dwarfs the next, uh, the next highest number, which is, I can't remember what it is, something like Homer or something like that. But the number of copies is a huge number, and this adds to the reliability. Another thing that's interesting is we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus, and they are remarkably consistent with each other. They clearly are a good example of describing the same events in the life of the same man, and yet they're different enough that you realize it's just people with different perspectives, and they focus on different things and for different purposes. So 
by and large, they are amazingly consistent. And how they are different is stylistically and the periods of Jesus' life that they focus on. So these two facts add to the reliability. And it also contains eyewitness accounts, people that were alive when they were written, who could have contradicted if they weren't true, contains a lot of eyewitness accounts, especially to the resurrection of Jesus. And finally, the information in the Gospels, are, it's also referenced in things that are not the Bible. It's also referenced in historical documents. So we have all these reasons that basically any person who was being fair about what they had, consider reliable historical document would call the gospels reliable there are lots of books that describe this and i have some of them written up here i think evidence that demands a verdict faith on trial the case for christ jesus and the eyewitness two of these books are written by people who set out to disprove the bible and the result was a conversion in faith because when they looked at the evidence they said there is no way that you can decide that these are not reliable documents describing the life of Jesus. So now once I realize that these are historically reliable biographies, like anything else I believe for history, from history, we should consider what they actually say. And the big thing in there is that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. In John, we see the account of Jesus talking to this woman at a well, and there's, he says some things to her that, that he should not have known except for the fact that he was the son of God and she was amazed. And at the end of the story, we see the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus claimed, this historically reliable account, has Jesus claiming to be the son of God. And in fact, he proved it because anybody can claim it. And normally we'd think a person that said that was crazy. But... He proved it by rising from the dead. And these four Gospels give consistent accounts of Jesus rising from the dead. And now at this point, there are some of you who think I have stepped off the deep end because I have talked about rising from the dead, right? It is hard for our Western, scientific, logical, modern minds to believe in the idea of miracles and specifically raising from the dead. And so what do we accept? Well, We accept science. We're very scientific. We're very modern. Specifically, we accept evolution, and more specifically, Darwinian evolution. So I want to talk about that really for a little bit. Um, Evolution attempts to explain why are we here on this planet from the beginnings of life, pre-life, in a kind of primordial soup, all the way through the modern day. Now, I'm not going to spend time talking about how, in that theory, we went from a loose collection of atoms to a to an actual living organism. Um, I've read about it. I've read Richard Dawkins' book called The God Delusion. I personally don't think the math works. I, I, I can't get my mind around the math of it. I don't think it's correct. However, I don't want to go into detail because my goal is that if you're going to take a Sunday nap, it is after church <laughs> and not in church. So I'm not going to do math today. But I want to focus on Darwinian evolution and the idea that all life on the planet has resulted from changes from a a common ancestor based on random chance and natural selection. So the idea is pretty simple, right? So you've got a fish in the ocean and a certain type of fish, and they have sometimes they have brown babies and sometimes red babies and sometimes blue babies. And the brown babies, they blend in with the rocks, and so they're eaten less, right, because the, the predator fish can't see them. 
And so eventually over time, all you have left is brown because they're the ones that are strongest and survive. And strongest or fittest could be, you know, that uh, the cheetahs that run faster are the ones that survive. It can be many different things, but it's the idea that the ones that are the best suited to surviving are the ones that survive. Now, this is called survival of the fittest, and I want to focus on that. Um, I will say, though, that as a guy who's a skeptic, this is a really funny term. Right? It's a circular kind of argument. So you ask the question, who survives? The fittest. Okay, how do you define the fittest? Well, it's the ones who survive. <laughs> so survival of the fittest to me really means survival of those who survive, or essentially some survive and some don't. But that's, we know that, right? We know that there are species that die out, the dinosaurs aren't here. We know that. We understand that's not conflicting with anything, right? But we'll still say for today, we'll pretend, we'll buy into the little way they say it and say that it means the stronger, the better are the ones who survive. Because I think that's how we think of it. The underlying idea, by the way, of all of this, there's an underlying worldview or philosophy, and that is called materialism. And what it means is the only thing on the earth is material, Atoms, molecules, they interact. It's chemical. It's scientific. There is no God. There is no mind that you have, that your mind, who you are, is only electrons firing. There is nothing beyond the material earth. And what I want to do is think for a minute about the implications of this idea. If you're a strong believer in natural selection... Everything happens by random chance, and certain ones survive and certain ones don't. And all it is is trying to pass on your genes. Star Trek told us that the world of science is a world of harmony, a world free from want, a world where the microphone doesn't move. It's, it's a great world. A world free from want. And I have friends you know, who are very, very, very strong believers in this. I don't think that conclusion is logical from a position of natural selection and survival of the fittest. Let me give you an example. I have a friend who is like passionate about absolutely everything and usually a little bit angry. And he believes if human beings do anything, anything that encroaches on the survival of another species, that it is a moral failure of human beings, which is an okay position to have. But if you believe in natural selection... Why, why do you have such a problem with that? Isn't that just human beings surviving because they are the fittest? And I'm going to make it even more personal. One of the things in the book about Bonhoeffer that struck me even more the fact that he was executed for his faith. One of the things he did, he knew some people in the small town that cared for mentally ill. Um, mentally, I believe they were children, but it's been a while since I've read that book, so I'm, I can't remember 100% that it was children. But... He encouraged them, do not surrender them to the Nazis when they come for them. Because Hitler's philosophy was, why would you give food to the mentally ill? They're weak. What we need is for the strong to survive. And that was horrific to me. That was horrific to think about. And yet, if I use my logic brain and say, but if I believe in natural selection, why is that wrong? Why is it wrong? Isn't that completely consistent with the idea that the strongest are the ones that need to survive? I think it's horrible. But to me, we all recoil in horror at this. Why is it? 
Because we have a sense imprinted in us of right and wrong. We have a sense that no matter what a certain person in the German government thinks, it is wrong to murder a person with a mental handicap because they're weak. We have a sense that they are wrong. But if you believe in natural selection, survival of the fittest, why is there any right or wrong? Because all it is, is people trying to survive. Now, I will say, to be fair, there are certainly scientists who study this who can tell you why you can get to right and wrong out of evolution or why there is a sense of what you ought to do. I find it very convoluted when I've read it. But I want to be fair and say that people that are smarter than me will tell you why, why you can get there. I find it hard to get there. We have a sense in us of right and wrong. We have a sense of moral law imprinted on us across cultures consistently. What makes sense to me is that the reason we have a moral law is because there is a moral law giver. Someone who has outside of the system of nature imprinted on us this moral law. And if that's true, then we have some responsibility to find out about him. Now, in stark contrast to this survival of the fittest view is the Christian worldview, which is that every human being has value because God has said we are made in the image of God and that he loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. Um, but now some of you the super scientific minds like, dang it, you went back to the miracles. Okay, <laughs> well... I just want to put an idea. If you're a person that's really hung up on miracles, and I have many friends whom I adore that are. They are just, they're just, no, they just can't. The idea I'd like to put in your head is that if you believe there cannot be miracles, that is an assumption, not something that has been proven, right? That is an assumption that you are making not something that has been proven scientifically. Science can't prove or disprove miracles because science is about what happens every day, right? Describing the world as it exists. And miracles, by definition, it is only a miracle because it is outside of that system, right? I want to think about this way. So say you leave this and say, yeah, I think he was pretty much off his rocker because I know that miracles don't exist. And tomorrow morning, you're going to McDonald's and you're in line, you're not paying attention because you haven't had your coffee and you're tired. All you want is your Egg McMuffin. And you hear fighting in front of you in line. And to your horror, the fighting escalates and someone pulls out a knife and an ear gets cut off and falls to the floor. Okay? And then you're in shock, you're in horror. And then another man comes up picks the ear up off the floor and puts it back onto the head and it heals. Okay? You've seen this with your eyes, but if your system at the beginning said, I do not accept that miracles exist, right? You will say that is a, not a miracle, but you will say it because that was your assumption, not because it hasn't been proven or because if science says something, you're just saying, I don't accept that they can ever exist. That is a worldview that is not science. That's a worldview, an assumption that is outside of science. And many people 
have that view, but I'm just saying that that miracle, by the way, actually happened in the Bible, in Scripture. A disciple was defending Jesus and cut off the ear of a soldier, and Jesus told, told the, the, his disciple no and put the ear back on the face, right? back on the head. So if you say that miracles don't happen, all I want you to think about is this is an assumption it is not something that has been proven. It is your assumption. Um, okay, Stephen, but rising from the dead. Dang, that's a really big one. Okay, I, I can even maybe admit, Stephen, that, that, that uh, I know it's an assumption, but doesn't it make much more sense that the story of the resurrection is just that, a story? That the disciples... And that the people that wrote the text just made that up. I think that is actually quite a reasonable question. I I really do. I just think it's a question that we have because we're looking back in the past, 2,000 years later, knowing that Christianity had an enormous impact on the world, right? We know that now. It's like, well, you would make it up so that you'd have this really great religion, right? Isn't that... But let's think about this from the point of view and the people in the first century AD who would have been making up this story. Is this the story you would make up? Well, first of all, many of the early church leaders and many people who believed in the message of Jesus in the first century were killed, sometimes in horrific ways for this. Why would you make that up? What is your motivation? What would be the motivation of the authors to make that up? And if you were going to make up a story, you would want to make up a story that is as believable as possible, right? Who is the first person that Jesus appeared to according to the Gospels after his resurrection? He appeared to women who are shown as the most faithful, the ones there at his crucifixion. He appeared to women first. Now, back in that day, not now, but back in that day, Women were considered unreliable witnesses in court. If you were going to make up a story, wouldn't you want to make it as strong as you could? Wouldn't you want to have him appear to a, a well, if you're making it up, I'd want him to have appeared to the most famous person that was now dead, so they couldn't contradict me. <laughs> but you'd want him to appear to a person that would have credibility. But he, his first appearance is to women. If you were going to make up the story, wouldn't you make the leaders of the church who were still alive at the time seemed brave and valiant and a person that you would want to follow? Let's look at what happened with Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and right before he was arrested and killed, Jesus told his disciples, you are all going to desert me. And Peter was a kind of brash guy. He was always the first to respond um, to anything. He says, not me. Even if I have to die, I will never disown you. And Jesus said, actually, tonight, dude, (laughs) three times you're going to deny me before the rooster crows twice. So I have this verse um, from Mark 14, 71, 72. Jesus has already been, we already, like, a couple of times, the first time this girl's like, hey, I know you. You're with, you're Galilean, right? You're one of those guys. No, 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 not me. He does it again. No, it's really not me. And then the third time, I think I should have a slide. Do I have it? Um, the verse. The third time it starts with, yeah. He began to, this is Peter, began to call down curses 
And he swore to them, I do not know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. That's my tough guy that I want to follow, right? Why would you put that story in if you're making it up? Why? In fact, it is the Gospels are chock full of the disciples kind of not being so smart with what they did. I think you would put it in there because you knew that the resurrection was true and that Jesus had forgiven you for your failings and you wanted to show to other people that he would forgive them for theirs as well. Now, there's kind of... Uh, there are, I think, what are, we, what are we left with? So Star Trek taught us that scientific progress would bring equality, freedom from want, harmony. Star Trek was really fun. It was science fiction. And the important phrase there is fiction, right? Because it sets up this world that's supposed to be all based on science and it shows, oh, it leads to harmony. But that was something that authors made up. It'd be nice, I guess, but it seems really inconsistent to me with the idea of natural selection. The Bible teaches that we are created in God's image and that our value comes from him. The Gospels are important. They're historically reliable. And they tell us that this man, Jesus, he was not just a great teacher. Got plenty of people that think he was a great teacher. Um, Plenty of people who will co-opt his words for their own purposes. But what it tells us that is life-changing and world-changing is that he was the son of God and he came to die in our place. And then if we believe in him, we have hope for a new life in him and an eternal life after we die. What I want to do today is encourage you to read the Bible on your own, to understand what it says, because if he really is the Son of God, it's one of the most important decisions you can make to know what the Son of God said. What did he say? And I encourage you to read it on your own, not to let your biases, you're like, well, I, I've assumed there cannot be a miracle, you know, not to let that get in the way of at least reading. I'd like to propose two simple ways that you can do this. One way is to um, go to Amazon and get a Bible on audio. We are all slaves to the car, right? We are in the car constantly. You can pop in a CD, you can put it on your iPhone, and just listen. Start in Matthew. I'd recommend starting in Matthew and going through the New Testament. Listen to the words of Jesus. Um, And I like the speed at which these things are read because it makes you focus on it as a whole. I think it's a really good way, easy way to read the scripture. But even better, I think, is if you can go back to the connecting table, we have lots of Bible studies. And it's just, you know, it's just regular people trying to study this historically reliable, what we believe are the words of God, to understand how it impacts our life today and try to live more like Jesus lived and like he wanted us to live we really, we're, we're open. We have them, you know, mornings and nights and different times. Go back to the connecting table and find out how to connect and listen to these words. Um, I certainly have. I'm really, really a skeptical person. I am a scientist, but I absolutely 100% believe and know that these are the inspired words of God. And I thank you for uh, listening to what I had to say. Let's pray. Let's pray.